as we've said, today is Vision Sunday, and this is the day where we speak at one level into uh, our vision focus for the year. Every year we explore part of our larger, broader vision, and, uh, and we see how that is going to be, uh, be shaping us throughout this year. And so we have a vision focus for the year, and there will be a whole heap of new initiatives that are going to take place as a result of that throughout, uh, throughout this year. Now, if you are new here today, or you've been around for maybe just a few weeks, you've just decided to make... Uh, us your church home uh, this year specifically, this is a really key Sunday that you are a part of this year, so it's great that you have been able to uh, been able to join us uh, for this. Our vision focus for this year is this, to be a church that is equipped and empowered by the Word of God, a church where the Bible is taught in ways that change people's lives and is practical to everyday life, a church where the gospel is proclaimed and lives are transformed. Now, I don't know about you, but I really want to be a part of that kind of church. I want to be a part of a church where the gospel is proclaimed and lives are transformed. Now, on the surface, it might be easy to look at something like this and think that it solely has to do with what is taught up the front on a Sunday service. Now, although that's an important part of it, if we are only encountering the Word of God through the eyes of a preacher on stage for about 40, 30 to 40 minutes on a Sunday, then we are missing out on the richness that is able to be found in the Word of God. Being under compassion Telling biblical preaching is important and it's paramount to the spiritual health of a believer, but experiencing the Bible coming alive day after day for us, that is where you are able to experience real transformation in an ongoing basis in your own personal life. In around 300 AD, there were a group of Christians who left their homes and they chose to live out in the desert to set themselves uh, aside to follow God in a really special way. Uh, These people didn't hide away from the world, rather they set themselves aside and then they entered back into their own communities uh, and they served those communities that they were a part of. These people, they were called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And these people entered into the wilderness because they lived in a time of real cultural compromise, particularly when it came to faith in Jesus. The desert fathers and mothers lived during a period during and just after the rule of, uh, of Constantine, where the message of Christianity went from being the countercultural message to becoming the dominant religion of the day, solely because the emperor, emperor had decreed that that would be the case. These people, the desert fathers and mothers, they lived at the height of what we might call cultural Christianity as they saw their faith, which was previously being persecuted, now being the faith that would persecute others who didn't adhere to this belief. These desert fathers and mothers understood that their faith was not something to be owned by the state, and so they left their comfortable lifestyles to enter into a lifestyle of investing into their faith in a really countercultural way of living that meant that they were persecuted and seen as outcasts by society, even though society at that, at that time had proclaimed to be a Christian society. 
Unfortunately, the state once again tried to institutionalize these desert fathers and mothers by creating uh, a movement of monks and nuns. But for a long time, these desert fathers and mothers were considered outcasts even by the Christian state because of their zeal and their uncompromising fervor for the gospel of Jesus. Central to their practices was the reading of Scripture. And they developed a practice that they called Lectio Divina, a practice which you can see more about in your life group material for Term 1. And these desert fathers and mothers began reciting Scripture as they did their manual work to stay alive. These people would recite Scripture as a regular part of their life because they saw it as a primary or the primary thing that was helping them to stay alive. One desert father called Abba or Father Isaac, that's what they called themselves, uh, Abba, um, Isaac the Assyrian, had this saying, the words of Scriptures are like a medicine. They heal the sickness of the soul. If you apply the medicine to the soul, that Uh, That is what it will discover its sickness. It will discover the spiritual passions that are in it and the sins it has committed. The scriptures are beneficial in every way. We live in an era right now here in Australia in 2024 where we are more well-resourced and more well-informed than any period throughout history. We right now have over a hundred translations of the Bible available for us today just in English. You can access commentaries, podcasts, lectures, articles and sermons all for free and all at a world-class level. And yet for most of us, it would be fairly clear that our commitment to the Bible is hardly comparable to that of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Now, many Christians would say out of obligation that at the very lowest level, they like the Bible. Most Christians would say that at the very least. Uh, Most Christians, I would assume, on top of that, would also say that they would like to read the Bible uh, regularly. But research says that uh, pre-COVID-19, that only 50% of Christians would read uh, their own Bibles for themselves at least three or four times a year. Post-COVID, this number dropped from 50% to 39% of people who engage with their Bibles by themselves a few times each year. That is an astounding number of Christians who aren't engaging with their Bible on a regular basis. And this is despite the fact that we have more resources available to us than ever in the world for us today in which we are able to access the Bible. Now, the reason that I have encountered most Christians say that they can't read their Bible, it's not a lack of understanding of the book, it's not a lack of accessibility, as that would be the case in other countries, it's that age-old excuse of busyness. I don't have time to read the Bible. We say that we are doing too much, and yet to read the Bible in a year takes, on average, less than 15 minutes per day. We do all sorts of things for 15 minutes a day. Men, I know this sounds crass, so women, maybe shut your ears for the moment, but some of you men, you might spend 15 minutes on the toilet in the morning. You can use that as your Bible reading time. 
Ladies, some of you are spending 15 minutes minimum doing your hair and makeup in the morning. You can listen to the Bible as you go. The key problem, I think, is not necessarily lack of time for any of us, rather it's lack of motivation. We will make time for those things that we are motivated towards, and for many of us, we might genuinely say, I just don't enjoy reading the Bible. I don't see the points. It doesn't bring me any great joy when I come before the words in Scripture. And so today, what I don't want to do is I don't want to give a whole heap of detail about what we're going to be doing this year. That'll be coming in future weeks and unfolding throughout the year. But I want to take you back one step before our vision focus, because there is no point in reading the Bible if there is no, well, without having any motivation or understanding of why it can change your life. And so today, I want to answer one simple question. Why read the Bible? Why does it matter? The first psalm in the Bible gives us a different picture than some of us might have about what we should experience when we read, uh, when we read the Bible. It gives us a picture that the Scripture is something that we can find joy in as we uh, open up its pages. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 1, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 3. Psalm 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. It'll be up there on the screen as well. And it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers." I began Bible college in uh, 2011, and when I started, I wanted to learn more about God through His Word, but I also just wanted to go to Bible college to make some new friends and have a place to hang out with other Christians, if I'm being completely honest. Both of these things were accomplished. I learned more about God through going to Bible college, and I was able to make some great friends. However, there was one student I remember clearly, and what happened after this student started Bible college. This friend of mine had gone to a Christian school, gone to a Christian university, out of school, and had been very, very committed to his church throughout his entire life. There was nothing wrong about any of, uh, any of these things, of course, but it came apparent pretty quickly that this guy had lived a pretty sheltered life um, in, uh, uh, in his experience. Not only had this guy come uh, with a certain background, but he had also clearly never read the Bible very much for himself. He knew parts of the Bible for himself, but only because he had grown up around it. So there were individual verses that he might know uh, because he had grown up around these verses. It became clear that this student was struggling with certain things when he was at college because the whole point of Bible college was to understand why you believed what you believed and why you adopted certain practices in uh, leadership or in life based on the Bible. And this student had always simply done certain things because he was told to do certain things. And then being put in an environment where he was asked the question, why was a difficult position for him to find himself in. 
This guy had grown up around faith his whole life, was going to Bible college, and yet he had seemed to have some, uh, some serious misconceptions about how to actually read the Bible for himself. He had, certain pre, uh, he had a certain pre-existing relationship with the Bible that affected his ability to be able to read it. All of us have this. We all have a pre-existing relationship with the Bible. Whether you realize it or not, you have a pre-existing relationship with the Bible and you come with certain thoughts and ideas when you read its pages. If you were born into a Christian home and were raised reading the Bible, you likely come with a certain bias towards the Bible. In the same way, if you have grown up in an environment cynical of the Bible, it's likely that you might have a certain level of cynicism towards the Bible. If you have come out of a Reformed tradition, you will have one way of reading the Bible that is different if you came out of a charismatic or Catholic or liberal or Orthodox uh, tradition. No matter who you are, you have a pre-existing relationship with the Bible and it's important for you to acknowledge that because it will shape both how you read the Bible but even prior to that, it'll affect the attitude that you have on whether you should read the Bible at all. It'll influence that question, why read the Bible? That question that we are all faced with. If you are cynical of the Bible... Why read it? If you are a Christian who finds the Bible strange, which is not a strange thing to feel, why read it? If you find the Bible boring and irrelevant, why read it? If you don't feel like you can learn anything else from the Bible, if you feel like you've gained everything from its pages that you possibly can, why read the Bible? I want to suggest that there are at least three reasons to read the Bible. Firstly, Scripture teaches us about what is true, Scripture gives us wisdom about what is good, and Scripture is the place where we learn to hear about God. And under all of these, there are ways to read the Bible that are more helpful and less helpful approaches in how to accomplish these things. Some of you may have been approaching the Bible in a less helpful way because of your pre-existing relationship with the Bible, but my hope is that today that you can understand the undergirding reason of why to read the Bible in a fresh way. So why do we read the Bible? First thing, it teaches us about what is true. This is something that most of, the, uh, most of us in the room wouldn't consider a strange idea. We believe that the Bible offers us truth that is not offered in other ways throughout the world. But the way in which we receive this truth is different depending on who we are. There is a less helpful approach in how to read the Bible as truth. One such way is the reference book approach. This is how most of us will read certain things in our day and age because that's how we've become accustomed to learning. The reference book approach is where you view the Bible as a place to access individual truths so it might aid you with individual things to understand life. It's like reading an encyclopedia or if you're a little bit younger, it's like reading Wikipedia or it's like looking up something on Google or finding information on ChatGPT. 
There is a certain piece of information where we want to know the answers to, and so we look up something individually to tell us what is true or not. So an example of this might be that we need a little bit more joy in our life. And so we go to Philippians and find the verses about joy that can, uh, that can teach us a little bit. Or we might want to know about creation, so we go to the beginning of Genesis or the beginning of John. Or we want to understand individual elements of the gospel, and so we look for individual answers throughout the book of Romans. This is how we have been trained in much of our society to be able to do learning. For every question I have, there is an answer. And so the Bible should have all of the individual answers to my questions about God and life. And I should be able to look them up quickly, like I would with Google, and have my answer and then move on to the next question. This is what we are used to in our current culture, a culture of quick answers. So it's easy for us to approach the Bible like this. Now, there are certain points in the spiritual journey, particularly if you're a younger Christian, where this might be helpful as, uh, as you're understanding core elements of the Christian faith. But this way of reading the Bible begins to fall down when you begin to read the Bible itself. The first words of the Bible, they are not um, like something plucked from a textbook. The first words of the Bible are in the beginning. And some of the last words are, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So the Bible, it begins with a line of narrative, of story, and it finishes with this line, yes, I am coming soon. It finishes with this line of continuing narrative, continuing story. The Bible is less of a reference book where we pick answers and is more of a story. Now, our society is moving away a little bit from the literary understanding of story. Most of us might encounter stories through going to the movies or watching Netflix. But generally speaking, the flow and nature of these stories is different than other literary stories. Many stories of literature through the years have ended without resolution, without answering key questions, without uh, a sense of things really finishing with happily ever after. And a lot of the Bible really does feel like this when you read through its pages. Now, since most of us are unfamiliar with this kind of uh, story, think of the Bible like a never-ending instruction booklet for a set of Ikea furniture. It's everyone's frustrating nightmare right there. Last year, I had to put a whole heap of furniture together for our son's new room, and most of it was flat packs. Being the male that I am, um, raised in the, uh, in the culture of the reference book approach, um, I saw something, uh, I saw the end result of what something should look like, uh, and rather than working from the start to the end, I skim read the instructions and tried to shortcut and I looked at what I thought were the key instructions along the way and I thought, how do I achieve the end goal? So long story short, I somewhat made our son's cot, but there were all these pieces left over at the end. And so I needed to go back to step one and start again. If you understand the Bible far more, as an ongoing, unfolding story, a never-ending flat pack manual, rather than a pick-and-choose reference book, you'll encounter the Bible far more as it's uh, supposed to be encountered, 
which is as an epic story. When you begin reading the Bible like this, you realize that it answers different questions than what you might even be asking, but more important, bigger questions that impact your entire being. Questions like, who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? Who is God? What's the problem? What's the solution? And it's answered primarily through the medium of story. 43% of the Bible is written as historical narrative, but the rest is written in the context of a greater narrative. According to psychologists, communicating through story has a greater ability to impact you as a person because it impacts both sides of the brain. So for example, uh, let's take a, uh, a really clear example here. If I tell you as a statement of fact that six million Jews were killed through the Holocaust, which represents one-third of the Jewish population worldwide and two-thirds of European Jews, most of us should be, I would hope, upset by those facts to an extent. But you are actually going to be moved even more if you were speaking to a survivor of the Holocaust and they told you their story personally and they told you the reality of what they have gone through in their life. It's their story that teaches us more rather than simply encountering statistics or facts. And this is what scripture is. It's an epic story that we find ourselves caught up and swept up in. This doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't answer certain truths that we may seek to know. It's just that that's not the main point. My, um, my dad, he's a painful fanatic of the works of Alexandra Dumas, who was a French novelist and playwright in the, who lived in the 1800s. It's not very interesting work when I was a, uh, a kid to grow up around. He wrote things like The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, and The D'Artagnan Romances, which uh, inspired the movie The Man in the Iron Mask. I didn't care much for reading these books myself. I still don't. Um, but we did own each of these movies as a child, and I really enjoyed watching these movies as I was growing up. Now, because my dad was such a fan of the books, he would continually tell me that the movies, they don't compare to the books. Many of you feel this way about different things in your life as well. He would say that the spirit of the books carried far more weight and value than what was communicated through the approach of the, uh, of the movies. These books, they commended, uh, communicated tremendous truths to my dad that he believed that the movies had left out. It was almost like, from his perspective, the movies nitpicked and chose the bits that they thought would be helpful in communicating the part of their story that they found valuable. Now, if we only approach the Bible as a reference book, whether we read a large section or small, we are missing out on the larger, grander truths of God's narrative that can teach us more about our place in the kingdom. This next graphic um, perfectly captures this story of the kingdom that we are caught up in in Scripture. That the world was created by God and He created humanity, but then humanity turned away from Him even to the point where God ended almost the whole world and started again. 
God eventually chose a family who he would bring salvation through, and this family grew into a nation and entered into a land that God had promised them years before. They appointed kings, built cities, constructed temples, and yet amongst all of this, they continually forgot about the God who had made all of this possible. This family kingdom eventually split into two, and everything seemed to go downhill. It seemed that this family had been left by God, but then the promised Messiah came. The descendant of this family line who made salvation available to the entire world through living, dying, and rising again. And now we live in this in-between period of salvation being made available before uh, the promised Messiah comes again. And so when you read the Bible like this, when you understand it as this epic grand narrative that we ourselves are caught up in, you are then able to answer the big questions in life rather than viewing it as a textbook with, uh, with answers to the questions that we think it should be answering. This epic story, it answers, who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? Who is God? What's the problem? What's the solution? And so much more. So scripture teaches us about what is true. And through, the medium of an epic, uh, through this medium of an epic story. But then scripture also teaches us about what is good. In previous generations, good had its absolutes. If we went a hundred years ago, look, good might look very different than what it does today. It was considered right and good to behave yourself as a child. It was right to learn to do a job. It was right for men to work and women to stay home and look after the house and kids. It was right to go to church. It was right to live following the current laws until you died peacefully. And then you passed this life of rights onto your children. This is what a right lifestyle was supposed to look like in previous generations, but this was pushed back on over generations by people who wouldn't accept certain things that they didn't see as right. People who wouldn't accept slavery, wouldn't accept gender inequality. They wouldn't accept poverty in other countries. They wouldn't accept what, they, uh, what was seen as the status quo. And bit by bit, the pendulum began to swing from understanding absolute good through a narrow worldview to the pendulum then swinging the other way to seeing good as entirely subjective. There is a lack of objective good in our society today, which began with postmodernism around 50 years ago, and it continues in various forms to this day. Now, because the pendulum has swung so far the other way, it can be easy for us in the church to do an overcorrection in our own minds and view the Bible as a rule book for how to live the good life. It seems to me that an overcorrection can happen within the church where we begin looking at the Bible as more of a rule book rather than as the thing that provides wisdom about what is good. Scripture gives us wisdom about what is good. But like the last helpful approach, it can be easy to approach the Bible as seeking to, in, uh, to answer individual ethical questions with individual ethical answers. And a lot of harm can be done if you approach the Bible uh, as a rule book. 
This is the approach to Scripture where you see the Bible as a map. It's the place that tells you where the right place to go is and that there are certain things along the way uh, that will help you to do the right things. It's a very black and white way of viewing the Bible without understanding that there is nuance presented through its text on certain issues. As an example, let me read to you from Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. And then you turn to the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, love your, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Now, if you are simply looking at the Bible as a rule book, what are you supposed to do with these two different passages side by side? We might simply discount the passage in Deuteronomy and say, well, Jesus fulfilled that, so that's gone right now. But that's a very lazy reading of what happened in Deuteronomy. And yet neither do we just discount the teaching of Jesus by saying, well, that's just good advice that Jesus was giving to us. Jesus, he genuinely means what he's saying here to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, when we view Scripture not as a map, but as a compass, we start to understand really the, uh, the true value of, of Scripture to us about what is good. Rather than viewing a Scripture as an outline of what is right and wrong, it's far more a book that pushes us into the realms of wisdom. Throughout much of the Bible, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, the New Testament, we're pushed outside of the realms of trying to say what the Bible teaches us about wrong and right, and far more into the realms of understanding the Bible as wisdom about what is good. Now, there are clear things throughout the Bible that are defined as wrong, and there are things that are clearly defined as right. But as we go through life on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't always know what the right answer necessarily is going to be. And the older I get, even though I'm still quite young, the older I get in life and in my journey with Jesus, the more I realise that he has provided this brain in my body and the entirety of Scripture speaking to me holistically as a means to be able to discern his will and act in wisdom in certain circumstances in my life. This is particularly true when we come to crossroads in our life, when we are faced with the question, what is the will of God for my life right now? What is the next step? And most of the time, we're not going to get a thunderbolt, lightning, word of God moment where God will say something audibly. And yet if you have, uh, you let a few 
uh, yet if your mind has been shaped and formed by the Bible over a long period of time, you will begin to understand where God's will might be calling you to go. About four years ago, when I was exploring the possibility of coming here as the, as the lead pastor, I was very nervous about that being a prospect. I was only 28 years old at the time when I was first considering this, and I was aware that the church had gone through a fair bit of hurt before I had arrived. Um, I was quite young, 28 years old, to be considering a role like this, but through a few different words from people and circumstances lining up, I believe that maybe this was something I should pursue. As a 28-year-old, I was so nervous about uh, the possibility of taking this role on, but after one visit to this church on a particular Sunday, I was driving home with my wife and in the Caboolture service station, God gave me this passage from 1 Timothy 4.12. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I didn't necessarily know if coming to this church was... 100% right or good or not, but because of God's word, I believe that this was the direction that God was pointing me towards. I believe that that was the compass and where he was directing. I believe that this was uh, the direction of God's compass, the Bible, that he was pointing me to, but I also knew that God was giving me this passage, this passage as uh, as a passage of empowering encouragement into the future. So scripture teaches us about what is true, scripture gives us wisdom about what is good, and scripture is the place where we learn to hear God. The Bible was not written to us, there were specific audiences that the different books of the Bible were written to, there were groups that the word spoke to more due to certain situations, and so it can be easy for people to think that certain parts of the, uh, of the scripture are relevant for us today, And yet, although the Bible was not written to us, the Bible was written for us. That's an important distinction to make, because the Bible's words are as much God's words for us here today as when they were originally written, even though we are not the primary audience it was intended for. So there's this whole skill set in learning how to hear from God for yourself when you're reading texts that weren't written to you for yourself. Now, there is a less uh, helpful approach where we might take the understanding that it would be, uh, th- that would be to say that the Bible is where we learn about God. This is where we understand the Bible as simply a literary work, which is important, but it stops there. We understand the context of people it was written to, we understand that it was written to a particular audience, and that through doing that we can learn almost secondhand about who this God is. And although this is an element of reading the Bible, understanding who it was written to in the context, effectively, if you simply, uh, this is simply reading the Bible as a book about God, and then you are leaving God out of the picture as you read its pages. But when you start reading the Bible, 
uh, uh, in the greater context. You are left with questions about the character and the nature of God. You can be left with questions um, when, you, uh, when you stop reading it in this way, um, asking, is God really good throughout the Bible? Is he really for me? Is he really a God of love? And the great thing is, is that God is not afraid of you asking any of these questions. Rather, God's desire is to be invited into the midst of you asking these questions. He wants to speak to you as you wrestle and meditate on his words. He wants to encounter you even through times of struggling and grappling with parts of his nature and character. Rather than approaching the Bible as though God is distant and we're simply learning about him, God actually wants to come into the midst of what we are doing and speak to us through his spirits and encounter us in powerful ways as we read his words to us. So the Bible is less where we learn about God and more where we learn to know God and be known by God. At the end of last year, I chose to start reading uh, through the Bible from start to finish once again, uh, ideally to, uh, wanting to do this in the space of, of one year. I've done this before. But as I was racing through the Bible, I found myself just skimming over things that I had read before. I'm currently in the book of Leviticus, and there I've been for a while now, not simply because I've missed heaps of days, but because I really want to hear God. I really want to delight in God. That passage that we read in Psalm earlier on. I really want to delight in God through the book of Leviticus. This is God's word given to us. What is he saying to us in this? And as I've been reading through this, I have genuinely wrestled with God at times. I have been confused. I've been weirded out. I've been filled with joy. I've been filled with conviction, and even if I'm honest, there have been a couple of things that I've had to wrestle with God in because I've been semi-horrified at certain things that have been said. As I have wrestled with this, with this book of Leviticus, and gone to other resources to help me understand what God is saying through this, I've encountered God in a fresh way through a book that many Christians choose to avoid. I've understood in a fresh way that the holiness of God and his desire for his people to be holy. I've understood in a fresh way that God's desire for his people more than anything is to simply love him and demonstrate it through how we live. I've understood more how righteous, how really righteous God is and how righteous, how unrighteous I am in comparison I found God showing me things in my own life that I didn't even realize weren't honoring to him. I've understood how God simply wants the best for his people and that following his ways is the best for my life. And it's because I invited God in. It's because I wanted him to encounter me in these moments and speak to me about things I didn't understand, that God has encountered me in a way that I never would have thought he would have if I was simply reading about this as, uh, as a lesson about God from a distance. These are the things I, um, these are things I do understand now, but not purely from an intellectual level, but from a level of knowing God more deeply and personally than I did before. So the Bible is less about where we learn about God and more about where we learn to know and be known by God. 
So with all of those whys in mind, I just want to come and draw our attention back to our passage for this morning uh, as the band comes up right now. Band, if you want to come up. I just want to read our passage once again after all of these whys being spoken about. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Delighting in the law of the Lord. Some of you may have heard this phrase before where you may have heard a preacher say, I had my sermon totally written and then I changed everything because God said something different. Some of you may have heard that before. I've heard that quite a few times and I've realised or I've thought most of the time either that isn't true or it's probably due to bad preparation. (laughs) But this week I became that preacher for the very first time in my preaching career. About a week ago, I was driving around and had my sermon already written for today. It had been a sermon I had been thinking about for months. And then I heard this passage. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. The law meaning the scriptures that King David would have read. So scriptures, the Bible. Blessed are they who delight in the scriptures that God has given us. My sermon that I had written had been carefully crafted. It had a killer response. And objectively, it was a much better crafted sermon than what I've preached here today. Um, And I was really trying to create a moment for God to speak to people. Now, none of that is is a bad thing. And God wants to speak to us through gatherings. And I genuinely believe that God wants to work in power as we we gather together. Um, But as I heard this passage being read, I realized that the best thing as we head into this year as a church is not just about having a one-off encounter, but more for me to point you to the place that you can delight in God on a daily basis. I knew God was saying something different in that moment for us uh, this year. God is not calling us necessarily to do anything or have any great uh, initiatives. There are things that he's calling us to do. Rather than that, though, I would say that God is calling us to delight in him in a new way and particularly delighting in God through his word. God wants to speak to you on a daily basis through this gift that he has given us and that is easily accessible to every single one of us. There are going to be some new initiatives through this year relating to our vision focus, and that's important, and you'll see and hear more throughout the year. But I believe that God isn't wanting us to collectively focus on what we are doing. Rather, he simply wants us to delight in him through his word. But for that to happen, it doesn't start with anyone on stage. It doesn't start even with our gatherings here. It doesn't start with me or another preacher or your life group leader. It starts with you. I've given you three answers to the question, why read your Bible? Some of those may have been compelling for you. Some of those may not have been. But I would say, if you are someone who genuinely, genuinely wants to delight in God, you need to get into the pages of Scripture and you will 
um, and you will learn so much through it. The first step to delight in God through His Word is to simply pick it up and start reading it. Over coming weeks and in your life groups, you're going to have uh, you're going to be given some tips, some really practical things on how to read the Bible. But it has to start with you answering the question for yourself of why should you read the Bible, and then making commitment to actually do it. When you commit, uh, when you make this commitment and you begin to encounter God through the Bible, you will be like this person in the Psalms that was spoken about. The person who delights in God's words is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Can we just stand together as a church, please? I just invite you to just close your eyes at the moment. Um, Just everyone, if we can just all uh, close our eyes. And if you are just going to make a decision that you, this year, you want to delight in God through His Word. You want to delve more deeply into His tremendous truths that He has given us through Scripture. I just invite you to just put your hands out in front of you as a sign of receiving what God has for you right now. And I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over all of us that we might delight in God in a fresh way through His Word throughout this year. Just put your hands out in front of you if that is you. If you want to delight in God in a fresh way through His Word this year. And so right now, God, we just say as your people, We don't want to come to your word anymore just to have our own questions answered or to think about ourselves more and more. Rather, we desire our eyes to be turned to Jesus and to see him as more beautiful than anything that we can behold in this world. Lord, we ask that you will teach us through your word. Lord, would you help us to not avoid anything that we might find difficult, but rather, God, would you come into those moments where we struggle with certain things and would you teach us in a fresh way? Lord, I really pray for my brothers and sisters here and joining with us online this morning who do struggle to read your word, who struggle to read it all, Lord. Lord, I really pray that you might provide ways for them and an understanding for them so that they might be able to make the next step in you speaking to them through your word. Lord, for all of us, we see that you are a God of love through the pages of Scripture. And would you reveal more of that character and nature to us as we as your people commit together to reading your word throughout this year. Lord, would you transform us into a people of truth, a people of goodness and a people of wisdom because of what you teach us collectively. Lord, I pray that even this week, that there might be movements and moments of your Holy Spirit encountering people through the pages of your word, not just in this moment right here, but as we open up the pages of Scripture, that you will speak to us in profound ways that we maybe haven't experienced before. So we open up ourselves to the work that you want to do in us through your word this year in Jesus' name. Amen.